Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. You'll be a Mormon. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and today my guest is Sean McDaniel. Sean McDaniel is an amazing drummer. I think he's the Vinnie Caliuta of musical theater. Why do I say this? It's because he's so versatile. He can play in so many different styles, and he does each one of them very, very well. Sean is so in demand that at one time, he was subbing at 11 different shows at the same time. Eventually, he went on to sub at 13 total, but he couldn't stay a sub for too long. Sean eventually went on to originate the books for Book of Mormon, Monty Python's Spamalot, Dolly Parton's 9 to 5, Lakage Au Foal, and Frozen. Sean has played with people like Audra McDonald, Clay Aiken, Jennifer Hudson, Sting, Dolly Parton, Adina Menzel, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Titus Burgess, and Jane Lynch. He plays DW Drums, Sabian Cymbals, Vic Firth Sticks, and Evans Heads. Stay tuned for my interview with Sean McDaniel right after this. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons, an opportunity to watch Clayton play in the pit of his show, and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock here, and my guest today is Sean McDaniel, the world record holder for the number of <laughs> shows subbed at one time. 13, right? 
Uh, actually, eleven at once, thirteen 11? total, I think. Yeah. My God, you like, I don't know. I don't know if it's a record, but <laughs> you should get a trophy like here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming on my show, and uh, oh, thanks for having me. I just have a question: Are you from New York, or are you from somewhere else? Um, I grew up in Texas and Oklahoma, actually. Oh, really? Uh, so pretty far away, but I always knew that I was going to end up in New York. So I just tried to make everything happen you know, growing up so that I could be ready to move here and try to uh, meet enough people from here so that I would have some connections when I moved here, that kind of thing. But it was a long, long-term plan. When did, when did you start playing drums? Was it in Texas or Oklahoma? Let's see. Actually, I didn't mention I lived in Atlanta for two years. So I actually started playing uh, when I was in Atlanta. We had a basement and uh, I inherited a set of drums from my uncle who passed away and my parents unpacked them one day. It's probably my seventh or eighth birthday and my dad was also a drummer so he showed me some basic rock beats and i just started playing along with Hart and brian adams albums and um started playing guitar and keyboard and singing and writing songs and basically just wanted to be a rock star and um kept just going from there so that was that was about seven or eight and um moved to oklahoma and texas and kept playing all those places always in the the public school music scene and band and musicals and orchestra and show choir and jazz band, all that stuff. Um, just kept working my way uh, up, trying to just learn as much as I could. Was it your, was it, was your father your biggest influence as far as the reason to play drums? Um, I don't know. I mean, he was definitely one of them because he, he knew those basic rock beats to show me. And also, so his brother was who I inherited the drums from. And my mom's brother was also a drummer. So there were three drummers in the family. Um, that the only one of them that was professional was my, was my uncle, but, um, they all played so they could show me beats. And I just tried to, um, I would, you know, hear a song on the radio and I would ask my dad how to play that. I remember when he tried to show me ticket to ride one time, um, cause it was such a complicated beat for a little kid. Um, so that was, that was a good moment. And, um, yeah, so having that family support was always, always important. You know, I never had my parents telling me that I needed to go into something else, you know, they just, I think from that early age, assumed I was going to be doing music because I just gravitated towards it, you know, as soon as, the, as soon as I got those drums. So there was never a parent saying, you know what, you need to get a real job because this, this music thing is cool, but. <laughs> nope. I was lucky. I, I, my grandmother was also a professional musician. She was a violinist and she played in the Fort Worth Symphony in Texas. So they always, they always had a professional musician in the family. So they knew it was a viable career option and that you could make a living and that, you know, um, it was, it was a real job and something you can do. So I was lucky that I had that in the family. So I wasn't, you know, breaking new ground, becoming a musician. Did you have certain drummers, uh, like rock star drummers that you idolized growing up other than Steve Gadd and everybody says, yeah. Steve Gadd. <laughs> um, I think, if, uh, early on it was probably, you know, like, um, Ricky Rocket from the band Poison. Really? Wow. That was, yeah, that was a big one. <laughs> did you um, have Did you have big big hair when you were young? Did you Did you? Grow I didn't. Hair I mean, I, I kind of you know spiked it up with gel, but I never had the <laughs> the long rock star hair. Um, but yeah, like like you know those bands and Tommy Lee. Um, I was into those kind of heavy metal bands for a while till I till I got into jazzier stuff. I, I started listening to Dave Weckl. I guess my drum teacher gave me a tape, um, a bootleg of Master Plan. And, um, so I got into that. And then, so that led me to, to like drum music, you know, like fusion stuff, which led me to, to actual jazz and, and getting to, to learn what the drummers I liked grew up listening to. Um, so I, you know, I had all the phases of 
you know, fusion and jazz and all that stuff. Um, and I, I was taking privately and playing in the jazz band in high school, but I didn't really get heavily into the, into jazz until college. Cause I went to North Texas, which had a big jazz program. Um, and Ed Sof really helped me with a lot of that stuff. Um, but I, I was in, into, and the, probably the, probably in the, the Pearl Jam, Weckl type phase, early nineties, uh, when the singer in my band, I was in a funk band and she let me borrow, um, the Les Miserables, uh, CD. And so when I heard that, I'm like, Whoa, what is this kind of music? It has, it has lots of drums in it, but it also has cool songs and has a story. And so I kind of fell in love with that, that album. And, um, I, I started really to try to figure out a way I was thinking, how could I combine my love of drums with my love of theater and, and make this happen, like be a Broadway drummer. And so I was like, I guess that was probably my freshman year in high school. So from then on, it was like, how do I get to New York and be a Broadway drummer? I thought it was totally an unreachable goal. You know, that was, I was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I was like, no, it'll probably never happen, but that's, you know, that's what I, that was like my dream job. Um, so, I, you know, I just tried to take steps that would, lead to that but I kept studying you know music and drums and tried to play in all the shows I could I was playing in the high school shows I remember they let me play Greece my freshman year when they usually only had professionals play so it was special that I got to play in the band uh with all the adults that, that came in and uh it was a great experience and so then from after that I played all the shows in the high school and tried to just play as many as I could so you said you had love for theater what was the thing that made you think that or, or brought you to the love for theater. I think it was, it was probably hearing that Les Mis album mm. um, just because the story is so epic. And like, you know, it's that, it's that novel. I, I, I read the book too, to, to try to get the more backstory in the musical and, and growing up, my parents had always taken me to see shows too. But um, so I got to see that one and then they would take me to everything that came into town. And um, I just really enjoyed it all. And so every time we'd go see a show on tour, I'd, I'd go down to the pit and try to like wave at the drummer in the pit. And, uh, and you just see if they would talk to me. Um, and, and, you know, one of the ones who did was Gary Seligson because he played the Les Mis tour for a long time and he was like my idol. And so, you know, I was like in middle school, just hanging out over the pit, waving at him, looking at his drums. And he was just one of the, he, he was so friendly and talked to me and took me backstage. And, um, you know, we just always kept in touch. And he was actually the person who gave me my first break on Broadway, you know, probably 10 to 15 years after that. So, you know, those relationships you have, at a young age really can pay off later in life, which is really special. After high school, you went to North Texas state. Now why North Texas, Texas state and not uh, Berkeley or NYU or some other place? Well, so I, I, I definitely wanted, you know, to do a, like a drum school. So I had that, um, that modern drummer article of all the drum schools. I think it had Miami, Berkeley, North Texas, and Indiana, maybe. So I looked at North Texas. I looked at Indiana I looked at um, like Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music. I was, you know, I did classical auditions at those places. I was way out of my league. I was had those like plastic marimba mallets, and I was playing my first marimba piece there. Um, but also, at the end of the day, I I was kind of nervous about going far away from home. So North Texas was 45 minutes from my parents' house. So it was like basically in our backyard, but had one of the biggest drum programs in the country. Um, so I, that really appealed to me about how how many drummers there were, how many playing opportunities there were and studying with Ed Sof, who I really wanted to study with, you know, since middle school. And I got to know him through that. So it was like a logical next step. And I was, I didn't have to move that far away from home yet. So it was a, it was a great place for me because I had so much playing experience. I played it in every ensemble and um, plus did all the musicals and I did a lot of gigs around the Dallas Fort Worth area 
while I was in school. So I was trying to just, you know, be as well-rounded as I could because I didn't know what was going to happen when I got to New York. Um, and I wanted to do it all in four years. So I had to do a few summer schools. Um, I had to do all the academic classes in the morning because I had ensembles in the afternoon. But it paid off because I finished in four years and I moved to New York the day at, the day of my last class. So um, I didn't even go to graduation. I was just on to New York. So does it usually take more than four years to graduate from there? or is it- I, I feel like a lot of the drummers stay five and some, some stay even longer and, and hang out. Some don't even graduate. They just stay there and take some classes. Um, but I just knew I wanted to get to New York as fast as possible. So I did the summer school so that I could finish the academic classes that I didn't have time for during the day. And also I had applied for um, grad school at NYU for composition because I, um, I figured I would study drums uh, for my undergrad, but I was going to move to New York anyway. So if I could get into this grad school for, for writing music, that would be a, a good, you know, a way to kind of ease into the New York scene, but still be in school. And um, I ended up doing that, which I think was a big help because I didn't have to be in the real world quite yet when I moved here. I still had two more years of school. So I was able to start playing some, some smaller gigs while I was in grad school and just, you know, go see the people that I'd met on the road, go see their gigs and hang out with people. And, um, started serving on some off-Broadway shows while I was in grad school. And a lot of that led to the stuff that I ended up doing, you know, on Broadway. So the first person you contacted, was it Gary Seligson? It's probably Gary. Also Larry Lelly. I had met in Dallas and he had, I'd kept in touch with him. Ray Marchica was another big influence. Um, I remember Ray was playing on the Rosie O'Donnell show one time when I came to visit New York and he had me come watch a taping of the show, which was so exciting. And he took me to Manny's music and um, I got to help him pick out his cymbals because he had, he needed a new crash, I think. So we went to Manny's and played a bunch of cymbals. I watched him do the taping. And so people like that, they were just always so supportive of me. I was just a kid coming from Texas, you know, and um, everyone was always just so nice. Like the, I think the Broadway drummer community has always been such a nice community. Everyone was so nice and welcoming and it doesn't seem as competitive as maybe some other instruments. So it's, it's fun to get to hang out with everybody and, everybody just welcomed me. So I was just, um, you're just trying to work my way in. Um, but I didn't, I never wanted to be annoying or, or pushy or anything. So I just kind of took my time and did as much as I could, you know, one thing about that, it's an interesting thing you brought up because having a show, there are a lot of people that want to do what we do and they reach out to you in different ways. There are people that are a little off putting, but there are people that are really genuinely, genuinely interested in doing what we do. And, how do you? Uh, how would you suggest someone that's interested in approaching someone, just like you did years ago? What kind of ways do you think that they should reach out to people that have shows that, if they want to go hang out and watch people play, what do you suggest they, they that they do? I mean, I I, I think any kind of message is great. Uh, Facebook messages I get sometimes, or emails. Um, or text, you know, when people introduce themselves, I'm always happy to meet a new person. And, and usually if I have a, a show, I'll have them come sit with me. You know, I think for most of Frozen and Book of Mormon, I had a guest with me once a week. I think <laughs> people used to make fun of me, but I just, you know, I, if, unless they, unless someone uh, seems like they weren't, you know, going to be like a normal human being in the pit, I would, they would usually get to come hang out with us. And, um, and I've met a lot of great people that way. A lot of people have become my subs. A lot of people I've recommended for gigs based on hanging out in the pit. So it's definitely a great way to meet people. And, um, and you know, you can tell a lot about someone when they come to watch. I'm sure you've experienced this too. The people that, that come in are like, oh, I, I could do this, or this doesn't look too hard, those kind of things. 
or the people that are like, wow, you sound great. This is so exciting to be here. You know, there's a big difference. There's a range of, 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 uh, uh, reactions people have. I've had someone leave at intermission one time. So they said they had enough. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Why? They they just said, they're like, yeah, I've had enough. That's what they said. (laughs) I I thought they thought the show was over maybe, but I was like, no, no, there's some more. And they said, that's okay. (laughs) I'm out. See you. Yeah. Wow. Really? That's something. But most people are really nice and, and happy to be there. And it's it's been fun to have, you know, to try to give back because of all the people that helped me out when I moved here. So I try to do the same thing. What was the first show that you actually watched on Broadway? So I guess on Broadway, it was, I think it was Les Mis, which was my favorite show. And it was that same trip where I came and hung out with Ray. Um, Bill Lanham was playing Les Mis. And I met him through the stage manager of Les Mis who did the tour and I was an intern at the theater in Dallas during college. So every summer during college, I would be an intern on all the shows that came through. So that's how I met like Larry Lelly and a lot of, a lot of Broadway drummers that came through. And um, the stage manager of the tour was, I think, the stage manager of Broadway later. So I just said, hey, I'm in town. Um, you think you could introduce me to Bill? Or, or maybe he offered and, and he introduced me to Bill and I got to sit with him. So it was, it was really special to get to see that music I'd grown up with, to see it in person and sit in that pit and watch it in action. So that was the first actual Broadway pit I was in. Um, but then the first one I was, the first one that I was there to learn a show as a sub was Aida, which was for Gary Seligson, um, the Elton John Disney show. Um, so, th- but actually, I think I probably watched Gary before I knew I was going to sub. I think I just watched him to hang out. And it was probably a year after that where I, he's like, you want to come back and watch? Cause now you're going to learn it. So that was, that's, you know, it's a different thing when you're watching for fun. And then when you're watching to try to learn it. So how did you prepare to sub at AIDA? So that was crazy. I, I had just finished grad school, so I had nothing going on. And, um, and Gary needed a new sub. And, you know, he, we, he'd known, known me since I was a, you know, a kid. Um, but he had seen that I had started subbing on some off-Broadway shows. And I was playing at the Westchester Broadway Theater in Elmsford, where he subbed at one point. And I was doing, you know, bands and jazz gigs and all kinds of freelance things. So he saw that I was, that I was doing stuff. So he said, maybe... Uh, maybe he could give me a chance as a sub because um, I think he needed someone uh, that had the time to sit there and just learn it. So I, I, I had a studio space and I, I set up my drums exactly like the pit drums. And I just took a month and just shed the show every day. I memorized the whole thing. I did every, every fill that Gary did every ghost note um, and just, just immerse myself in it. And so that when I went into play, even if I was extra nervous, which I was, I was prepared beyond a level of nervousness so that even with the nerves, I could still get through the show. And, um, and I did okay, I guess. And so I got to come back and play it some more and, um, just playing that show for Gary, um, led to every other subbing gig. So, you know, the word got around cause Gary, you know, everyone knows Gary and I guess they would say, who, who did you recommend? And he would recommend me and then people would call me and then other musicians I played with in the pit, like non-drummers would recommend me to shows they were playing, um, so it just kind of built up and, and snowballed to where I was just subbing a lot and, and had all that music in my head. You know, I was young enough to have the capacity for that. Um, just to, just to play, you know, you could play Lion King for the matinee and rent at night and further on the roof, you know, like just, it was just a very um, varied <laughs> scores in my brain. So start out at Aida word got around. What was the second show that you subbed on? Um, that you I remember? think second, I think second was Les Mis actually, um, oh, wow, which was, great. you know, that was like a childhood dream. Like I never thought that would happen to actually play on the Les Mis on Broadway. 
Um, so I owe Bill Lanham for that. And I, I remember the first text message I ever received was on a, on my little Nokia. It was from Bill Lanham, and I was sitting in the pit at Aida. And um, I always remember that. And I got so I got to come watch and learn that one. Um, and Les Mis was hard because since it opened in the in the 80s, they didn't have the fancy monitoring system that they had at Aida. So you had a hotspot, you know, like one of those little stand uh, monitors, and you could turn it on or off basically. And it had just keyboard, bass, and maybe guitar. Like that was it. You couldn't hear the vocals. Um, it was it was a uh, it was scary, but I was so glad I got to do it. You know, it's so, so rewarding that I that I got to fulfill that dream. So I always will appreciate Bill for that. You said you worked on some off Broadway shows before <clears throat> before mm-hmm. you got some Broadway gigs. What were the off Broadway shows? So um, I got one through that same stage manager, Tom Schilling, who I met in Dallas, hooked me up with an MD, Bruce Coyle, who was doing the show called The Gory Details, which was based on uh, Edward Gorey's cartoons. It was a really quirky show, but I was still in grad school. So I thought I'd hit the big time because I had my name in a playbill and it was an off-Broadway show. You know, I don't I probably paid, I don't remember what it paid, but I was getting a paycheck and I was like, this is it. You know, this is the real uh, New York life. Um, so I was trying to balance that with grad school, but luckily it didn't run very long. It was it was a short, short-lived run, but it was the Union Square Theater on, it was a 16th, um, the Century Center down there, by, right by Union Square. And um, so that was the first one. But then I ended up subbing on um, a show called Bat Boy, which oh, was- Oh, yeah. Matt Beck yeah. was in that band, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, uh, Matt, and Matt Urbano. Who was and the drummer? Greg Seaf was playing. I think Matt, it was Ed Fast. Okay. It was a friend of Gary Seligs. And, and once again, Tom Schilling, same stage manager, it keeps coming back to him. And Gary hooked me up with that gig, which is where I met Alex Lockamore. He was the MD. And so, so many of my gigs over the years have been with Alex. And um, that relationship all started from subbing on that off-Broadway show. So if I had, you know, gone in and done terribly there, that could have been the end of my relationship. But <laughs> luckily, I, I, I prepared and I, I did well there. And it was it was a fun show. One thing that uh, that I think happens a lot if you establish a relationship with a musical director and they like what you do, you generally get hired by that person over and over again, which is a good mm-hmm. thing. And that's oh, yeah. kind of happened to me with Kenny Seymour and, you know, other people that I've worked with over the years, they like what I've done. And so it's definitely good to establish that relationship and uh, hopefully that will lead to bigger things, which mm-hmm. it did with you, which uh, your first Broadway show was what? So the first one, uh, that was Spamalot. It was the Monty Python musical. And uh, that came through Michael Keller, who, uh, if you don't know, he's he's one of the contractors on Broadway. So he's one of the people that hires the bands for these shows. But as you know, and a lot of drummers know, most of the time the drummers are already hired by either the composer or the music director, and they're already on board. But for some reason, Spamalot didn't have that situation. So Michael Keller was asked, he was the con- contractor, so he was asked to recommend a, a drummer. So... Um, I was subbing on so many of his shows that he had been hearing my name from, from people and that I was doing, you know, all different styles of shows and Spamalot had a mix of styles. So they needed someone versatile. So Michael recommended me to the music director who was Todd Ellison. And um, so I had to go do an interview with Todd and the choreographer, Casey Nicola, who's now a huge director. Um, but he was choreographing that show and Todd was the MD. So I met them, I think at rehearsal studio, maybe Shetler or something that was just the two of them. It was very informal, you know, just hanging out. They were like, asking me, what kind of shows I liked. I didn't play anything. Um, and then I go home and then the next day uh, I'm in rehearsal for a Broadway show, um, making up drum parts. Like 
I didn't even know that's what you did. Like, you know, they're just like, here's the piano part. We're working on this scene. Just play some stuff. And so um, I owe that one to, you know, to, to Keller getting me in there with that interview and then Todd hiring me. And we ended up running for four years and it was, a wow. you know, it was an amazing gig. It was, it was so fun. So before that though, <laughs> which I go back to my introductory uh, statement, you have the world <laughs> record for the number of shows sub because it, it matters. Let me tell you why. You had 11 shows at one time. That's amazing. I couldn't, I think I might've had two or three <laughs> and that's a, that's a lot, but 11, man, how, how did you, I mean, obviously you were younger and you had the energy yeah. and you had the capacity to do so. Um, what was it like, you know, <laughs> having all those shows at one time? I mean, it was definitely exciting because, you know, I, I lived in the city, so I could be someone's last minute uh, call off like like sometime one time Tommy Igo got stuck in traffic so he's like can you run over and play Lion King or was eating dinner with my parents they were in town and they're like go go you know they were so happy that I got called for a gig so I would run over and um, so sometimes it would be a last minute thing sometimes it would be planned um, a lot of times there would be juggling where I'd, I'd have booked a show but then someone was in a bind like can you switch this show to get a, so play for me and get another sub which happens to all of us now and we're happy to accommodate because it does happen um, but I just remember it was always it was always fun to just go in and try to nail whatever show I was on and, and try to put myself in the mind of that drummer playing on their set. You know, usually I'm shorter than most of the drummers I sub for. So I'm always having to reach for stuff and um, just always trying to nail, have a perfect show everywhere and have no mistakes. And I, I didn't want to get notes. You know, um, a lot of conductors will, will give you notes at the end and say what you did wrong, or whatever. And my goal was always to try to have no notes and have nobody notice I was there or, or have someone say, wow, I didn't even know the drummer was out tonight. Um, so was, I was always challenging myself for that. And it was just rewarding to play all the different music um, and to play with all the different musicians. Cause you know, not only are you playing with all the regular bands, there's always substance. So you're playing with sometimes a different bass player every time you go in or a different conductor. So you get to meet everybody and you see who's a little bit different and who you enjoy playing with. And you just have these relationships and then you make friends places. So, you know, when you go in, you also get to say hi to everybody, you know, and once you've played enough, you stop being nervous and you can actually talk to people. Um, so that was fun when I got to that point. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a great period. I know I couldn't do it now, but, uh, it's, it, it was a definitely exciting time. What were the 11 shows that you were on? So let's see. Well, Aida, Les Mis, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Further on the Roof, Lion King, Wicked. What else? Oh God, there's a lot. That's only six. Nine, <laughs> nine, nine Avenue Q. Well, I have a list if you want to. Wow. Yes, um, I'm going to hear the list. Okay, Aida, Les Mis, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Rent, Fiddler on the Roof, Nine, Lion King, Wonderful Town, Wicked, Assassins, The Producers, Avenue Q. My God. Yeah. So, That's, <laughs> busy the, time. The the thing about that, it just shows you how versatile you are. You're like the Vinny Kaliuta of, drum, <laughs> of Broadway drumming. Oh, that's Holy a, that's a good cow, comparison. man. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard because some of those shows, you know, you're slamming and like breaking sticks. And then some you have to play so soft that, you know, you, it's, you're using tiny sticks and, just, and you just don't want anyone to shush you, you know. Um, so it's a range because even now, you know, some shows you're in a booth, sometimes you're not in a booth. So that the volume is... is is always a, a, the hardest thing. I always say volume and tempo is the hardest thing because that's what people notice if it's too fast or if it's too loud. Um, so 
so just getting those things right in all the places. Luckily, when you have a click track and a drum booth, it solves two of those issues. Did you ever uh, watch that movie Whiplash? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever have those experiences? It's too um, rushing. You, you know, you're slowing right. down. <laughs> there, there are definitely some, some conductors like that. You know, sometimes you'll get this. It doesn't happen so much anymore, but I guess in the old days and even into when I started playing, there were conductors that would get angry on the podium, throw things, curse at people. Um, some people, I feel like once you get something really grooving, they still have the urge to move it. Um, which is why I like playing a show with a click because you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I never had anyone yell at me too bad, which, uh, which was good, I guess. Out of all of those shows that you were doing, what was the most difficult one? I always say that I think that Lion King was probably the hardest. Um, there, there was no click on Lion King at that point. They've added one since, but, um, so there was a lot of tempo stuff and there were five percussionists. So you had to navigate being in the center of that orchestra with two percussionists in the pit and then two in the house, all basically playing 16th notes the entire show. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it was really tricky, but it was so rewarding when everything came together and so fun, you know, playing circle of life and you see those animals walking down the aisle and everything. So I'll always, um, you know, I'll always appreciate Tommy Igo for that opportunity, which, which came from playing, um, Aida and came from knowing the bass player, Dave Phillips, who was also subbing at, at, um, Lion King, and he was one of those lamest tour musicians. So I had known him from an early age, and he he recommended me to Tommy. Um, and so it was hard because Tommy is such a good drummer, and he and he plays so many cool things. And so I had to I had to realistically say, what can I pull off that Tommy's doing, and how can I simplify some of the things so that I don't sound like you know I'm I'm trying to copy him doing things that I'm that I'm not capable of doing. You know, so I I, I simplified a few things, but. I really wanted to make it sound like what he does. So that was tough. And the tempo stuff was hard, but, um, you know, it was rewarding. And I love, I love playing there, but that, that was probably the most challenging, I guess. Of course, Aida was hard too, since it was my first one. And Aida had a lot of electronics mixed in with the drums. So you had like electronic pedals and pads all over the drums, plus an octopad. So a lot of different patch changes and knowing where to hit what, you know, because you wouldn't want to hit a funny sound effect that would go off in the, in the wrong place. What was what was your um, next show after Spamalot? So directly after Spamalot, I went to 9 to 5, which was Dolly Parton musical that we had been workshopping during my time at Spamalot and, um, you know, getting it ready for Broadway. We had to go to um, L.A. for a little and then we came in. So that was my next one. And it was um, it was really exciting to, to get to to do Dolly's new music that she had written and to originate another show. Cause you know, I didn't know if Spamalot was going to be my only one ever. So um, it was cool that I got to do a second one. Did you get a chance to meet her? Yeah, she was around a lot. She came to the um, workshops a lot and she was very friendly. She talked to all of us and um, she would bake brownies for us on her tour bus and, and <laughs> or fu- actually fudge, she would bake fudge on the tour bus and bring it in. And really? um, she was super nice. I remember one time during previews, my parents were there and um, they had left the theater and I saw her backstage. I said, my parents would love to get a picture with you and meet you. And she's like, oh, okay. And she waited there. And I went and tracked my parents down on the street and brought them backstage. And they got to meet her. Um, she was just the coolest and, and wrote some really beautiful stuff. So that was definitely a rewarding experience. Were you ever starstruck by the people that you started working for? Uh, like, like Dolly Parton or anyone else? Yeah, Dolly was a big one for sure. And um, 
I remember um, at Aida, John Harrington, the guitar player, was there, and he plays for Steely Dan. So I yes. was that was that was a pretty big one because I was like playing with him in that pit, and then he was going to go play with Steely Dan after. You know, it's like it was it was crazy. And there's there's all kinds of people like you know like Tom Barney at Lion King, um, just people you play with. That that's the cool thing about Broadway is that uh, uh, the level is so high that a lot of these musicians on Broadway are playing with huge people on their off time from Broadway. So it's so fun to hear those stories and to play with them and realize they're playing with some of my favorite drummers, you know, in other gigs. So that's always been a, a really, really cool thing. Um, a lot of people nowadays, they go to music school and then they come out and they want to play Broadway. Did you, I know you, that was one of your main goals is to do what you're doing now. Did you ever think that you wanted to go and be a rock star or play with Steely, you know, somebody like Steely Dan or was Broadway your, your main focus always i mean I, I basically i wanted to just be a, a professional musician i wanted to make a living playing drums um however i could but you know the rock star dream was was before broadway i definitely had that and i really wanted that but it seemed even harder to attain than broadway which seemed impossible but um i i always i always kept both in the back of my mind and and through my um you know, playing on Broadway and, and freelancing in New York, I was able to get hooked up with Clay Aiken from American Idol. So I got to do a few tours with him, which, so I finally got to have like a, um, you know, like a pop tour. So that was another dream come true, getting to do that and playing those big places and, and not being in the pit, being on stage. So I was recognized by the fans and that kind of stuff. And that was a whole experience. So that was, I'm so glad I got to have that because it's so different than, than Broadway. And, and it was, it, it did, it did like, you know, made me fulfill my, my dream of almost being a rock star, you know, playing those, those big places of the big power ballads and everything. Um, but, um, I just wanted to, you know, I just still now I just want to play any kind of music I can and, and do as many gigs as I can. And just, um, I love having Broadway as a home base when that's, when that's around. Um, but I just love playing anything and just, I just want to just, you know, keep doing it. If you could have a, uh, a, a, hair band like like rack <laughs> 20 2021 style would you do it right oh yeah i would love to do like a <laughs> like put together a, a cover band do a gig somewhere motley crew mm-hmm. <laughs> dr feelgood top to bottom yeah. uh so after uh you did spam a lot then nine to five what was uh the next show that you had after that let's see that was oh nine. Lacage. Oh, so we yeah, Lacage was next, but we were working on Book of Mormon, so I knew it was coming. But um, my friend Todd, who I did spam a lot with, was doing Lacage, and he said, "Do you want to come do this?" Because you know, nine to five closed a little prematurely. I thought it was going to last until Mormon, so it was actually perfect because um, I had that time before Mormon, so I got to say yes and hang out with my friend Todd, and we got to do a show together. And um, it was it was the first time I'd done a show that was a revival which means it's a show that had been done in the old days and they're bringing it back. Um, and it was also the first time I'd done a show that had been originated by someone else. Cause it started in London. So I remember um, the first thing I wanted was I wanted to get recordings of the London version because I wanted to make sure I was playing it. I wanted the music supervisor from London to like me. So I wanted to play it like is as what he was used to hearing. Um, so I got the pit recordings. I was in touch with, with the drummer out there um, to just make sure I could, you know, cause so, so little of, what drummers play on Broadway is written in the score. A lot of it is, is by year and stuff people have added. So you get the charts and I wanted to write everything in that the drummer was doing out there. So I got to do that. And then I also wanted to put my own little spin on it because this was the Broadway version. So we're doing, you know, the New York version. So I did get to change some stuff and add some things. Um, 
And I was always trying to think like, where is the show set? And I was like set on an island. This was see like 1980 or something. So I was thinking, what would that drummer, because we're playing in a club, a nightclub. I was thinking, what would that drummer have been listening to in real life? And I was thinking, he probably listened to Steve Gadd back then. Um, and so I was like, I was trying to play it, as, play the, the music, you know, authentically, but play it with the, in, in mind of how a drummer would have approached it if he was in that club on that island. So it was a fun experiment. I love playing the show. We worked with um, Kelsey Grammer and, and Douglas Hodge and won some Tonys. And it, it took me right up into Book of Mormons. So I actually had to leave that show early because Mormon was coming in. Now you, were and, working, uh, you were working on Book of Mormon prior to uh, Lacage? Yeah, we spent, I think, three years working on Book of Mormon, um, You know, starting with just a, a tiny workshop where they didn't even know if the show was going to be an animated movie or a Broadway musical. And it was like a 20-minute workshop. They had, uh, they had hand-drawn this, this beautiful cartoon of like what they thought the uh, set would look like and they they put it over in an overhead projector behind the the reading stage and um yeah we were just cracking up laughing the whole time um but we didn't know what was going to happen and then we did another one it kept getting longer and they realized it was probably going to be on broadway um so i was really hoping for that to work out after the cage and it was a, a great um, transition I, I just got to go from one to the next which is a really cool feeling i saw you play the show in the pit once and i saw it from the audience now there's very little that makes me say, oh, my God, that's way out of, out of bounds. <laughs> now, <laughs> but I, you know, they, they were like, oh, my God, it's so irreverent. You're going to just you gotta crack up. Now, for the first, like, for the first act and then probably halfway through the second act, I'm not going to reveal what happens because you, you got to see it. I was like, oh, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's crazy, man. But I love that stuff. I mean, I mean, apparently everybody great. else did, too. Yeah. Wait, some stuff we thought this is never gonna work. This is never gonna work. This they they can't won't get away with this, and it all happened, and we did it all. <laughs> I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> I, I I loved it. I I love watching you play that show. I, oh, it's thanks. always it's always great to watch what other drummers do on Broadway because we all have our little things. Like some people have, like you talked about electronics in certain areas, and some people play have mm-hmm. a a blended percussion and drum book. So. Each each pit is very unique and it's fun to watch. So, uh, Book of Mormon won all the Tony Awards. Was it 2011? 2011. Yeah, it was right yeah. after Memphis. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that ran, well, still running. And now you left so, that to go where? So, during Mormon, just like, just like with Spamalot, I was developing a lot of shows during the day. So, a lot of them I would do development for, and then I wouldn't play on Broadway. Like I would just help them develop it. I would help come up with grooves and do like a a reading or a workshop of the show. And then someone else would take it over to Broadway because I I liked having Mormon as a home base. So I did a bunch of things. Like Before you go on, tell me how you got involved in readings and workshops and how does, how does uh, one, how does a drummer get involved in things like um, that? Again, it all goes back to the relationships you have and, um, you know, meeting Stephen Arimus, at Wicked and Alex at Bat Boy, those guys, when they do a reading sometimes, will, will, will call me to help develop it. And um, a lot of the MDs I worked with subbing would call me for readings because they liked the way I played or they would ask the regular drummer and they weren't available. So then I would be available. Um, that's one good thing about living in town was that I was always right there. <laughs> I could get anywhere in, in 20 minutes. Um, and so the thing about playing readings is you need several skills. You, you need to be able to a lot of times read piano music and know how to interpret it to play a drum part. You also have to be able to play by ear, 
make stuff up on the fly, um, knowing styles. That's why I always say playing in bands and listening is so important because they want authentic versions of these styles that they're trying to copy. So if you can play a lot of styles and, and can play by ear without charts. And then a lot of times you have piano music. So you're reading that and remembering what to play, or you can write it in. And then you need to be able to um, play very soft a lot of times in these workshops because they don't have microphones yet. I always say Broadway is like two different gigs because you play the workshop with toothpicks as soft as you can and you get into the pit and you play like stadium rock. Um, so it's, it's sometimes the parts evolve because of that. So I just, I, um, I, I attribute it to my time in show choir in high school where we were playing, you know, Broadway songs and pop covers with just drums and piano and no mics. And I learned how to, to play soft and, and keep the intensity to make it sound, trying to sound like the recordings. Um, I think that helped me a lot when I was started doing readings in New York because I just, I knew how to, to play soft. And so people, I think, responded to that and started calling me to develop shows, um, which is how most of my shows have come from is because I had developed them early on. So during that Mormon run, I did a lot of shows that I didn't even play. Like I worked on Kiki Boots one time. I worked on Carrie the musical, like a bunch of things that I would do just and develop and not play. Um, one of them was Newsies, the Disney musical. I helped develop that and write all the drum charts, but uh, it was too soon to leave Mormon. So I, I, I trained Paul Davis who ended up playing it. And um, I worked on a show called Violet during Mormon where I took a leave of absence and went to play that on Broadway because it was, um, it's complicated, but because of the way the contracts work, I was allowed to do that one because it was a nonprofit Broadway show. So I did that during, I got to do Hamilton um, during Mormon. I developed that for years and played it off Broadway. Um, and so, but I didn't leave Mormon until uh, Frozen came along because it was another one I'd been involved with way back since the movie. So I thought, so I thought after seven years, okay, maybe now it's time to leave Mormon. And it was, seemed like a logical move. And so we had a great uh, two-year run until the pandemic, obviously. Did you feel apprehensive leaving? Or you were like, you know, I, I want to do something different. I, I had always wanted to do a big Disney show and, and Frozen was my chance. And like, I thought about it, I could have been safe and, and stayed at, um, at Mormon, but I, I really put in my time there and I was ready for a new challenge. And since I had worked on the movie, you know, like five years, four years before, um, I felt like it was like a, a journey that I wanted to complete. And I, I really wanted to be the one to be playing those songs on Broadway and, um, I knew it was going to be a huge orchestra. I knew it was going to be a nice uh, pit setup. I knew we could do a, a cast album. Plus, we did a bunch of you know TV things and a music video. Um, it was definitely it was definitely the right move. Um, and I and I'm you know I know we would we would have been still running if the pandemic hadn't happened and and Disney had to pull the plug. Um, you know, trying to cut costs in all departments, theme parks everywhere, and that was their that was their Broadway money saving um, you know cost cutting measure. So. It was sad, but I would I would not trade it because that was one of the best experiences ever. What was your first cast recording that you did? So let's see. We my first off Broadway show we didn't record, but my second one it was called I Sing. Um, we did record, and th this guy Billy Eichner was in that show, who's a famous uh, personality now. He's a really funny uh, internet guy and TV person. Um, he was in the cast. We recorded that. I think I think it was at Edison Studios. Um, was it Edison or Clinton? Clinton. Wait, what's the one? Oh, I can't remember now. But whatever it was, it was the one. It was where they recorded Michelle Camilo's trio album with Dave Weckl. So I remember I was so excited to be in there. Um, and I was thinking, wow, this is the same reverb that, that Dave had. And we were recording an off-Broadway show. Um, so that was the first one. But it was a very limited budget and very quick. You know, a lot of times even Broadway shows will record in one day. Um, 
but you know, if you're lucky, they'll, they'll spring for an extra day. Um, so it's usually pretty quick, but it was, it wasn't the same experience as doing like frozen where, you know, you have a, you double the orchestra size for the recording and you have lots of days and lots of hours. Um, you know, it's always fun to get to go and record. Did you ever, uh, you know, playing these cast recordings, you go in there, you, sometimes you do it before you do the show on Broadway. Sometimes you do it like weeks after you open. Uh, fortunately for me, I've had the luxury of playing the show for a long period of time before we go in. So I'm like, I'm used to playing the show when I can go in and make the edits mm-hmm. that they want. And I'm just like, it's like playing the show. Uh, did you have a situation at all where you weren't necessarily as prepared as you want, wanted to be? Was it any nerve wracking experiences? Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's great when you can do it after you've been playing the show. Cause all your parts are solidified. You know, when you, what you're going to play, where you, you and the bass player know what you're going to do. I guess for, um, for spam a lot, we, they wanted to have it. They wanted to be able to sell the CD on opening night. So they wanted it already recorded before we opened. So we had done the show in Chicago as pre-Broadway. And then we came to New York and did the album before we started performances. So we had a whole new band of people who were, who were sight reading in the studio, basically. And I remember we had to set up, so I knew the show and the piano players in the show and the conductor in the show, but we were basically training this whole orchestra to do the whole show to record it. And it was at the right track, which is closed now. It was um, 37th or 39th, a big, huge right track. It was like a gymnasium. And so they were setting up for the recording. So they had me in this booth, uh, which was amazing. It sounded great. And they had the orchestra in the big room and everyone was like, and they're like, but we need to rehearse first. Can you move the drums out into the main room? And they're like, no, sorry, we already mic'd them. So we had to rehearse with no headphones, with the orchestra out in the main room in this booth. It was, it was crazy. I can't remember why. I guess it was a time issue. We just had to rehearse. And so that was scary trying to, you know, play with people that I could barely hear. But once we started recording, we had headphones and everything and it came out great. It's one of my favorite albums. Frank Filippetti uh, was engineering. Um, but that was a little scary. Um, but after that, I think all the other ones I've done, we've done an after opening. So you, it's all solidified and everyone's comfortable with each other. What was your but, favorite cast recording that you've played on? That's tough. I love the way Frozen came out. It just sounds epic um, and has a huge orchestra. But Spamalot, even though it was my first one, it has a really, I like the sound of the drums on it. Um, a lot of times you don't spend that much time mixing the drums. I feel like on that one, they got a great drum sound. Um, sometimes it's hard to go back and listen to a cast album because you're used to your mix in the pit where the drums are cranked and everything's EQ just how you like it. And so you have to remember when you're hearing the album, it's not going to sound exactly like you're used to it and it's hard for your ears to adjust. So it's sometimes better to wait a few years before you go back and listen. <laughs> have you ever, you know, a lot of musicians that play on shows don't see the shows that they're in because when they go into the audience, they're like, Oh my God, it's all I hear are vocals. I don't hear what I'm doing. They're like playing all this stuff. No, fortunately for us, you know, drums are a bigger part of, of, of most shows. Have you seen most of the shows that you played in? No, I never, and never have. And it's basically for that reason, because I feel like if I saw it and heard what it sounded like, it would make me play differently. And I would, I maybe would, would regret some things or I would, be mad that some things weren't loud enough. So I really, um, I don't ever want to see what it's like um, in the house. But for for the good news for drummers is that a lot of times when the show's being put together, we get to sit in the audience while we're playing, while they're teching the show, we're like when they're putting everything together. So we actually do see the show and we see all the special effects in the sets and we're just playing along. So we, we're hearing ourselves 
before we move into the pit. So that's great that we get to have that experience. And then usually we'll get to have a, a TV monitor of the stage so we can see it from the pit. Um, but that's how I would, that's how I prefer to see my own shows. And uh, what do you think the most important thing a drummer should know about being a success on Broadway? Let's see. I mean, I think it goes back to the thing I said about relationships and just, um, you know, being nice to everyone along the way, because you never know who's going to be the one to, to give you gigs. So those, those personal skills are so important and, and having good relationships, but that's half of it. The other half is the playing. And um, you always have to be able to back up, um, you know, your personality with your playing, because you're going to want them to ask you back for both those things, not just for one. And so, you know, s- staying fresh with your playing and always, you know, staying on top of, of new music that's out there, always listening. Um, so you don't, um, especially if you're doing like a long run, you don't want to get stale on the music or on what else is going on outside your show. So I think those are really important things. Just, you know, trying to be the best person you can and the best player you can, um, not just on the, on the Broadway music, but on every kind of music. When you do long running shows, how do you keep things fresh? Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm sure most people know this, but you're allowed to take off from the show whenever you're, you know, you can take off up to half the year. I mean, you don't want to take advantage of that rule, but um, if you're having a day where you're like, I don't feel like playing that tonight, you can call a sub. So that's one of the beauties of, of it. Plus if you have another gig, you can call a sub. So, I think the, the way to stay fresh is to do as many outside gigs as you can. Um, you know, even if it doesn't pay well, you just take it cause you'll get a night off from your show and you get to play some new music. Um, so that's one way is, is, is taking breaks and, and doing other things, but also when you're there keeping it fresh because it's first of all, the audience is seeing it for the first time. So you, you got to think about that. Okay. I can't be complacent because they've never heard this before. So I got to give them the same show I gave on opening night. Um, and the other thing is, there's always going to be different musicians in the pit. So sometimes we'll have a different bass player and it'll make me play differently. So that keeps it fresh or even the regular bass player will do some stuff and I'll be like, Oh my gosh, did you hear that? And I'll do something that keeps it fresh. So there's always new stuff happening. There's always different singers on stage that keeps you on your toes. And so I feel like I don't think I've ever, even though Mormon was seven years, I don't think I ever got to the point where it was ever boring um, for a single night. So um, I think it's a lot about your mindset as well and um, just being positive. But there's really not much you could be bored with because so many things are changing every single night. What are the things that you look for in hiring new subs for you? Um, a lot of times it's, it's, I just want people to be happy when I'm not there because the last thing you want is to be on vacation and get a call from the conductor saying you got to come back from vacation because we don't like your sub. Um, so <laughs> that's happened, but not to me. Um, so you want people that everyone are going to, everyone is going to ha- enjoy playing with and hanging with. Cause you know, if, if there's someone sitting at that band table before the show and everyone's like annoyed by them, they're going to tell you, you shouldn't have that person back. Um, so you want to find people that, that get along with everyone, good personalities and great playing. So a lot of times it's, it's recommendations from either the conductor will ask for some subs they want to see or other rhythm section people will ask for subs. And then there's the long list of people who've, asked me to sub, you know, which is, it's sad that I can't accommodate all those people because I'm usually working off the list of people I ha- I'm supposed to use, you know, people that are, that are, that I'm asked to by the conductor and then people I have a relationship with that have subbed in other shows. And it's hard for me to, to use someone that's never played a show before, because a lot of times these drum books are so complicated with starting click tracks and Ableton and watching state, like stuff you have to have experience with. So a lot of times conductors will tell me, 
this isn't the show for someone who's never played a show before um, because of the pressure. So I usually, if I'm going to use a new person, I'll, I'll have them, I'll wait until they've played another show first and talk to that drummer and say, oh, they did well, great. And then I'll, I'll train them. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's just that it's personality and playing and, and usually experience, um, which is, it's hard to, to get, but I, I guess I'm trying to think if I've given someone their Broadway debut before. I don't know, but also the conductor will let you know if you can have them back. So it's, it's not always up to you about who you get to use and who you get to keep. And so it's a tricky thing. I remember when I was on a certain Broadway show and I, I had a drum sub and I kind of knew that this person wasn't going to work out very well because they wound up changing the sound of the V drums. I mean, oh, no. I see reprogrammed. I know I'm, I'm going to do it my way. It's like I got a call. I was playing a wedding and then I got a call from Jason Lafredo. I was like, we can't have this guy. I mean, it was a text. I looked oh. at my phone. I was like, oh man. So that was, the, that was one instance. The other instance was on another show where the person came in and uh, wasn't allowed back because Stephen Oremus is like, no, we can't have this person back. And I was like, why? And I, I called the person, and they were like, uh, well, they didn't like what I brought to the table. I'm like, no, you don't bring oh, anything to the table. <laughs> the table's already uh, set. Just yep. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that, that show, working with Stephen Oremus, Matt Beck, and Conrad Adderley, was Tick, Tick, Boom back in 2001, nice. which you are the drummer on the movie, which is great. So tell me about how you got involved with that. So, um, again, it goes back to relationships. Um, um, in 2018, I guess it was three years ago, they were putting together a reading, which like I said before, is, you know, it's like a, like a theater reading where it's a piano and drums and the actors sitting around reading the script for something. But this was different because it was for a movie, but they still wanted to rehearse it like a show. So it was Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut feature film. So he really wanted to rehearse it like a Broadway show. So Lynn and uh, Alex was the music supervisor and Kurt Crowley, also from Hamilton, who had relationships with all these people. Um, it was just for the, for that first one was just Lynn and, and Kurt. And so they wanted to add drums. Um, and I knew the music because I'd heard you play it and I'd seen you guys perform it uh, in 2001. I had the recording. So I, I, I remembered a lot of the songs, but I knew we were going to be approaching a lot of it you know, in a, in a new way. Cause it was a movie and a lot, a lot of changes. So I just, I came in and, we, and I played along and um, we were in a little classroom um, up in Washington Heights in Lynn's neighborhood. Um, so we were playing really soft. It was so exciting to hear the new script and how they, um, how they took this concert that Jonathan Larson who wrote rent um, and, and died really young. Sadly, he used to perform this concert and he called it tick, tick, boom. And it was all the songs he wrote and it was all about his life. And so just to see how they, transform that from so it was his concert then it became the off-broadway show that you did which was like a theater version and then to take it even further and make it a movie using a lot of the same source material but but still making it about jonathan's life um so we did several of those those readings like that and just kept evolving and then um they said they were going to start filming it and and Lynn always was joking at the readings, like, you're gonna I'm gonna make you in, I'm gonna put you in this movie. And I was like, Really? <laughs> Me? And he's like, I want you to be in it. He goes, because one of the scenes in the movie is um like a, a, a workshop. He's like, You've played so many workshops, you'd be the perfect person to play to play that role. And so um we started rehearsing for filming, as I guess is gonna happen. And that would probably was, I guess, January 2020. And then of course everything shut down. And so I was like, 
well, I'll, I don't know if that'll ever happen. And so, you know, pandemic's going along and I got a call from a movie contractor, Sandy Park. And um, she said, we're going to start filming Tick, Tick, Boom. I'm like, what? Right now? And, uh, <laughs> uh, and at the time, my husband was away on another movie and I have my son here. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I had to go, I had to move to Brooklyn for a month to quarantine and film this movie. And I was like, I don't know if I can make this happen. So it was a lot of uh, moving parts. I had to fly my mom up here. She had to quarantine for two weeks before she was allowed to come into our building and take care of my son. She took my son. She's, you know, in her seventies going to skate parks every day after school with my son. And she was amazing. And was that's the reason why I was able to do it. So I had to go to Brooklyn and um, quarantine there while I filmed. And it was, it was just a crazy experience. I've never, I've never done a movie before. So, you know, I had hair and makeup every day. I had a trailer. I had this amazing hotel room with a balcony, but I wasn't allowed to leave the room um, <laughs> and so, except to go to the set and back. Wow. So it was a crazy, crazy experience. But playing wise, I was, you know, I was uh, playing on set, but I was hearing the music that I had recorded for the demos for the songs. So I was trying to match exactly what I played on those demos and then, you know, six months later, we we went back and re-recorded them again, but in a big studio um, and did a few more little tweaks. But so and when the movie comes out, you'll hear me and you'll see me. And hopefully it'll, it'll look like I'm doing all the right stuff. Do you know how many scenes that you're going to be in? So um, I'm in two big ones. Um, basically, whenever there's live music in the in the story, I'm the drummer in those scenes. So sometimes they'll flash back and forth to them. So there'll be several spots. I think where you'll see me um, playing or sitting there or whatever, but um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was very exciting. What are some things that like a drummer that's subbing on a show should never do in a Broadway pit? Well, like you said earlier, uh, bringing stuff to the table, um, <laughs> you're really supposed to, as a sub, you're supposed to be copying everything they do. You know, every ghost note, every fill, every dynamic, um, all that stuff. It's, it's not so much later when you're subbing and you get really comfortable and there's a, it's the kind of show that allows maybe a different feel sometimes. And you can do that and the band will be like, oh, yeah, cool. Um, but if you start doing too much, you know, and the actors start noticing or the MD complains, that's when you probably might not get asked back or you might get more notes. So it's, it's best to start off just copying everything and, and trying to get into the, the feel of that drummer, the feel and sound of that drummer the best that you can. What are some things that a uh, drummer should always do in a Broadway pit? Well, uh, the biggest thing is, is stare at the conductor. Just always be looking at the conductor. Um, that's why, why it's so important to have this music in your body. Um, you know, like I said on Aida, it was my first one. I memorized it all. I didn't even look at the charts. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a lot to ask on every single show. So usually the, the music is put in a place where you have a sideline to the conductor. But if it's not they just always want to know that you're communicating with them because if they need to move something, if, if they need to tell you something, you need to be looking. They, they don't want to ever have to get your attention, um, you know, especially as a sub, because they're already going to be nervous that the regular drummer is not there. So that, that communication is, is so important. And just being you know, nice to everyone because you want to be asked back. On the long-running shows that you've had, you talk about memorizing the show. Do you still have the, the music there and do you look at it or do you just have it there just to, as a, you know, collecting dust? I mean, I always have it there. Um, and I always flip the pages because if you zone out, which could happen, like you like start daydreaming or something, 
and you're and you don't you look up and you're like wait where were we and so especially if there's a show like like mormon or frozen where you're running like tracks and samples and things you want to always have that in front of you so you can glance up and be like i'm on that patch um so i always i always keep it there and flip the pages even if i'm not reading the notes but it's just great to have the visual reminder and also the muscle memory of turning pages is going to keep you in the in the form of the song because if you're always turning pages in the same exact spot um your body just knows where you are so i think that's important i'm sure you have plenty of endorsements who you who are some of your uh the people that you endorse i've uh, been lucky enough to to, the longest one is um dw and you know that was another childhood dream you know ricky rocket and tommy lee always had those dw (laughs) kids um and i just always was into it so that was my high school graduation gift from my parents was a dw kit um which i still have and i've used on several broadway shows um, so I thought when Spamalot happened, oh, I can finally get endorsements. You know, I, I was like, I can send the press kit around. Um, it didn't really happen like that. Cause you know, more now, I guess Broadway is on a more, um, national level with those kind of things, but then it wasn't as big. Um, so that wasn't enough. But then I remember once Spamalot, we won the Grammy award, which in the drum company world, you know, Grammys are, that's something they, they understand. They don't know what Tony's are, but, um, so that's when I got the uh, DW endorsement. And um, after that, I got uh, Remo and Vic Firth, but now I use Evans. I still use Vic Firth. And I got Peisty when I got the Clay Aiken tour, but now I use Sabian. So right now it's DW, Evans, Vic Firth, and Sabian. And they've all been amazing. And having the relationship with the company, just something that like, I don't take for granted because it, when you need something, they can get it to you they can make you special things that you can't buy other places. Just having that direct line of contact, I think is so helpful. And then when you're playing in another city, you always, DW always has a set that I can use and you just know it's going to be consistent. Um, and so this, I think it's just, it's really great to have. And I, I really, you know, appreciate all these companies for everything they've done. So you've worked with Dina Menzel, Cheyenne Jackson, Ruben Studdard, Ariana Grande and Jane Lynch. Who are you working with right now? <laughs> right now, it's just uh, finishing up the Tick, Tick, Boom movie. Um, I've been doing some concerts. Um, some clubs are starting to open up again. So the past two weeks, I've had some concerts. One was like kind of uh, singer-songwriter, and one was kind of pop covers. Um, I, I might have a, another um, TV project coming up soon. I'm doing a, an album right now for a composer named Scott Allen, which I'm doing from my own studio. Um, so things like that, you know, a lot of the home recording has been a lifesaver during the pandemic because I've been able to do stuff on my own time. People send me tracks and I can record them and send them back. So that's mostly what I've been doing lately while I'm waiting for live performing to, to really come back. Where can people find you on, on uh, social media, internet? Yeah. My website is smdrums.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. If you want to reach out, um, you know, I'm happy to hear from everybody. You give lessons? Yeah, I have been doing, I was doing Zoom lessons during the pandemic. It was the first time, you know, I had nights free and I was like, people that had asked me to, to do lessons, I, I was able to, to do it. So I did some over Zoom and now I've even started doing some in person again at my studio, which has been really fun to, you know, to get to help people with their sound and their feel and see some progress. It's really rewarding. Sean McDaniel, thank you very much for being part of this conversation. Thank you so much, Clayton, for having me. 
Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.